This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Tonight's broadcast is not live. However, I hope you'll enjoy this pre-recorded program. Media scientist, producer, and protege of the late Marshall McLuhan, Nelson Thal, is here for the full two hours. In Hour 1, the life and times of one of Canada's greatest minds, the first major communications theorist to examine how new media and technologies have the power to transform human nature. In Hour 2, Nelson stays with us to discuss, among other things, how President Trump has used COVID-19 as a cover to bring down the U.S. Federal Reserve. Nelson is recognized as one of the world's leading authorities on the science of communication media and process analysis. His expertise has afforded him the opportunity to define law terms to the Federal Court of Canada and develop a television series with the late Dr. Timothy Leary. While a graduate student studying at the University of Toronto with Professor Marshall McLuhan, Nelson became a McLuhan protege and served as the president of the Marshall McLuhan Center on Global Communications from 1990 to 1995. He served on the board of directors of Torstar, Stanley Media Inc., Peace Arch Films and Entertainment, and other publicly traded media companies. He's a lecturer, author, and has been a consultant to companies in the United States, Russia, Canada, and Britain. Nelson Thal, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Doing well, keeping out of the way of the viruses and out of way of God's wrath. <laughs> Indeed. All right. You know, you and I have not talked at length about Marshall McLuhan. You, of course, were his protege. You studied under Marshall McLuhan. Later, you became the official archivist for Marshall McLuhan. I just wanted to talk about his contributions, his theories, what he might think of the mainstream media today. Let's start off with his main theories regarding the effect of the mass media on the culture. Sure. Well, I think um, this is a, a great topic to go into. It's a, it's a deep subject. And so um, we're going to simplify a lot of things uh, as much as possible. But um, 
I think what we should note is McLuhan was basically a scientist. He approached everything in a scientific thinking fashion, and he created and developed. He was the Einstein of media. He discovered the laws of media. Uh, Einstein discovered the laws of relativity. McLuhan, in his own right, and it was recognized by the New York Times, etc. They called him the a media guru, and 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 that he was. Uh, they compared him with Einstein, Pavlov, and and Pasteur, and others in writing. The New York Times did. So it's not a reach. It's just that people don't really fully understand the laws of media, just like they don't understand the laws of relativity. They know Einstein is famous, but. If you really sat them down and asked them to write a couple of paragraphs on it, they'd be lost. And I think the same is true with McLuhan. He was a media scientist. His laws of media are just fantastically been uh, proven practically by I've worked as a uh, uh, when I went out into the consulting world and put his theories to a test his laws let's call them and see and and they they work and so he is uh, certainly uh, one of the major thinkers of the 20th century of course we're all familiar with uh, the medium is the message and actually the first printing went out there was a typo didn't it go out as the medium is the massage no, what happened is McLuhan never did write a book, The Medium is the Message. He, he It first came out, uh, he talked about it in 52 on radio, and he wrote some special essays, but it really hit the public when he published in 1964 what was called Understanding Media, the Extensions of Man. And the chapter one of that book is called The Medium is the Message. And then after having made a, become very popular, many years later, some guys sat down with McLuhan and put out a second version of Understanding Media, and they called it The Medium is the Massage. Ah, all right. That clarifies. So, so what, yeah. what does that mean, The Medium is the Message? Well, it well, let's look at the medium as the massage, as a, really, and we can get at that. Uh, what does a massage do? It works us over. It displaces our sensory ratios, alters our, us, and causes us to uh, redo a reset. And um, and uh, we have a big business. Massage therapy is a big business. It's important today. And it works us over and alters us. A massage alters us. It alters our mu muscles and it alters our thinking and we do it to relieve stress and media also have effects on the psyche on the conscious of man and uh, on their sensory ratios and cause them therefore to see and perceive the world in ways which they wouldn't otherwise have perceived it and so what happens is the uh, means by which we communicate has a huge effect on how we think and perceive the world, and it's not necessarily the content of those media. It the being able to use a telegraph and instantaneously send a message to the other side of the world had far more meaning and effect than whatever we typed on that telegraph. And the same is true for telephone or television or any technology. The effect of the medium is far greater. Not, he's not saying the content isn't important, but comparable, relative. The media effect of the medium is vastly greater than anything you can do with the content. 
Was McLuhan concerned that the owners of the system, which is a phrase that you've used for many years, was he concerned that they would use television uh, to to control the masses? Well, um, the answer, of course, short answer is yes. Uh, what, was, what was this question again? Was he concerned? Yes, or, that, that the owners, that, that the well, owners, yeah. I'd say that he was very concerned because it had already happened with many other previous media. Uh, radio, is, of course, I mean, uh, let's go back. McLuhan, um, McLuhan really did talk a lot about conspiracies. And he believed that the bottom, uh, the top-down conspiracy, which we can get to, is plays catch-up to the bottom-up conspiracy effects. Now, what, is he, what does that mean, in effect? You know, well, poetry communicates long before it's understood. So some of McLuhan's phrases, and when I speak to you, like, you know, um, whatever you, cl- you claim I said, it's true, but uh, it's not my said. It's just that I have a good photographic memory. I can read something McLuhan wrote and say, okay, well, this is what Marshall would say. And it's not my opinion. I'm almost getting your, giving you wrote word for word right out of his books because I was his archivist. I had the ability to read and understand and things. I could read 600. Uh, we, you know, when I was working on my PhD with McLuhan, I would be reading through um, 13 inch and a half books you're reading through a day. And I could remember pretty well after the end of the day, if you were to say, where's this phrase? I had the ability to go and find it. So I was valuable to McLuhan because McLuhan wrote 600 essays and about 22 books. And even he wasn't quite sure that he didn't even remember some of the times where he wrote certain things. And um, I became a, became a resource for the New York Times journalists afterwards um, because I had this ability. I worked for Walter Williston, who was a top lawyer in Canada. I had that ability as an archivist to be able to read vast amounts of literature quickly and retain a good portion of it, or at least the most important parts of it anyway. So I was able to help McLuhan, and I developed a great relationship with him, got to know him very well. And um, uh, You mentioned that he uh, that he was he believed in conspiracies. You were yeah, about he, to yeah conspiracies, and basically you know in Forces magazine when he was asked about the Kennedy assassination he said without batting an eyelash and he's quoted well of course the establishment killed them, and I remember thinking when I heard that I realized yeah that's how I feel and McLuhan just summed it up and put it so well well of course the he didn't just say the establishment killed Kennedy he said well of course they did, I mean because when you think about it you realize how many people have the ability to murder the president of the United States. What organizations, global organizations in the world are necessary? And so you realize, well, of course, who else do you think would kill him? Okay, so Alone. how did he arrive at, I mean, he, he this particular worldview that he had about yeah. the owners of the system and the establishment and so forth. Yeah, that was, was his turn. Was that informed by by uh, communication, his communication theory? Did one feed into the other? Yeah, well, McLuhan, remember, got to the pinnacle of worldwide academia 
he was like a pyramid of academia. He was the top, top rock, the top rock right at the top. <clears throat> he kept it all together. He was the guy on top. And so he had a lot of influence and he understood what was going on. And, you know, he wrote that the, the arts and science, he lamented that the arts and sciences were in the pockets of the secret societies. And he named them papacy, Rosicrucianism, uh, masonry, and uh, Jesuits. So he named these secret societies, some of the top ones, in writing, in his, uh, in his articles. He didn't do it in his books, but in his articles, in his essays, uh, published in, in, in university journals. Remember, there was a lot. He published not just 22 books. Long before his books, he published vast amounts of university published uh, in university journals in the St. Louis University, UAT, Harvard, all the different universities around the world. That's how you become part, you get to the top of worldwide pyramid at, at the top. So he was publishing, and all these universities were interested in publishing his stuff. Is that... that is Sorry. that is that why he? I mean, was somewhat That's of a, a right? But was his were his views on the secret societies and so forth? The, this conspiracy, the the top oh. down, was that the why they canceled his PhD program? I mean, you were about to get well, your PhD. Not only that, they they tried to they canceled. They threw all his research and every student of his they threw off out of the UAT after he had his stroke, Mrs. McLuhan had to get, it's public, you can look it up in the papers, he had to get, she got Woody Allen and Pierre Trudeau to put pressure on the UAT not to close down the Center for Culture and Technology. And then once he was dead, that's it. Nobody could rise up and stop them and they canceled it. They got rid of the Center for Culture and Technology and renamed it the McLuhan Program in Culture and Technology. However, folks, there's no one can do a, a you can't do a Bachelor of Arts degree specializing in McLuhan. There's no chair at the U of T, McLuhan chair. I mean, you can't do a PhD on McLuhan. The guy's name's in the French dictionary. He's one of the great social scientists of our era. Anybody involved with social media is being influenced by McLuhan and the UAT has shut him down. That's that's typical of what's going on in Canada. And and it's going to resonate with this. We won't get into it with this. Uh, this recent plague is going to absolutely decimate the country. Well, let's just stick with McLuhan for a moment and we can talk about the other later. But media scientist Nelson Thal uh, with us and he studied under Marshall McLuhan, was the official archivist for Marshall McLuhan and... Uh, so you were in the PhD program uh, before it was was canceled. So what was yeah. it specifically uh, that that had the uh, the powers that be, as you say, kick everyone off campus after McLuhan uh, had his stroke? Well, uh, if you if you get into <laughs> you know if you don't want anybody to develop a bomb that's going to that's going to uh, can take out the world or decimate North America, a continent, then you make sure that Einstein stuff doesn't see the light of day and doesn't get talked about or taught. So what was right? it? What? Uh, they, they, what McLuhan stuff would do would open people's minds. Um, 
get them out of their dreamlike sleep. Um, start to recognize television as a serious drug. Start to realize that if um, uh, literacy, since literacy destroyed Homer, then rock is going to destroy literacy. Explain that. What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, that's just, but what he's saying is since the since the pre-electric, since the mechanical world, the mechanical world, <clears throat> literacy is a mechanical invention of the Gutenberg press. We're not just talking about uh, uh, writing with your hand. Uh, 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 a um, uh, just a, a non-printed handwritten script is easier to memorize than it is to read. You can't get in touch with an author's mind. But the mechanical world of the Gutenberg press destroyed Homer and the Greeks. Rome defeated Greece with the invention of the phonetic alphabet and lightweight papyrus. Remember, the Greeks did not learn to read and write. It was beneath them. They let their slaves learn to read and write. The Romans conquered Greece and brought the Greek slaves and made them into their children's tutors and taught them to write and read. And if you marry the phonetic alphabet with lightweight papyrus, then you can build roads and send armies at a distance because you can send couriers every 15 minutes, which is what they did with lightweight messages. We, with 26 letters, the phonetic alphabet, a tremendous technology, could say everything we had to say to our armies in the field. The Chinese, they needed to learn a thousand symbols before they could say what we could say with 26. So we were way ahead of them and built an empire around the world. The Chinese, why didn't they ever build an empire? Because their phonetic alphabet was not as streamlined and fast as ours. Getting back to what made McLuhan so dangerous, you were saying that he understood of uh, the, the power of the medium and how it could be used uh, and that, that he was opening our eyes. So just expand on that. Well, and uh, he also understood the Bible. So he understood the top down, the big picture. He understood that uh, Satan, the devil, Revelation 12, 9 has deceived the whole world and deceived the nations and that there's a top down spiritual conspiracy that was put in place by Jesus Christ when he overcame in Matthew, he, uh, he defeats Satan. So how come Satan's still God of this world, as it says in 1 Corinthians? Why? Because in order to have a law, you've got to have a punishment. And, uh, Christ uses Satan as his punisher, and he has him on a leash. And we know at the end time, he's going to use Satan to bring in his tremendous anger against mankind. And of course, McLuhan understood that. So McLuhan understood the, the spiritual conspiracy leading into the physical realm. And he identified the secret societies were close to that spiritual power. And that's what were the secret societies that he talked about. And that's dangerous for the uh, for the university. That's dangerous. They don't want people talking about that. You'll lose your advertising. You'll lose your support. You'll lose your money. It's like the media. They're controlled by the advertisers. Find out who, the owners of the system own the advertisers. So they can dictate what you hear. Andreas von Bülow, head of German CIA, wrote a book about CIA and 9-11. It was banned here in Canada. It was banned in the United States. Why? Because it exposed the, what was really going on in 9-11. So 
McClellan understood and taught these things. The band books. He talked a lot about the band in Boston books. That was a term he used. So he understood the top-down conspiracy, and he could he he understood how the media was uh, he called Satan the great electric engineer. Because technology is used to do to brainwash us and put us to sleep. Television completely eliminated our civilization. It's a drug far worse than LSD. So it's you know these things is what McLuhan was getting the university to talk about. They didn't want to talk about that. So that's why. And we we just have a couple minutes here before the break. We'll start the, this conversation now and then uh, okay. continue after. But what? Do you suppose McLuhan would have had to have would have to say about the mainstream media today had he lived to see it? Would he have been surprised by it, or did he predict it? The the state of the mainstream media. Oh, he many cases predict. It wasn't difficult um, as a media science, and it would be a less than a third year course to be able to project that people are go- T. S. Eliot. He would reply. McLuhan's answer to that is he would quote T. S. Eliot. T. S. Eliot said, "Western man is like a man on a gurney, gurney attached to an IV." Hmm. So the whole society, T.S. Eliot said, is just put to sleep. And so they're sleepwalking. I mean, we've got, uh, uh, who was it? Uh, Ultravox, great song, Sleepwalk, remember? Came out in the 80s. Yes, yes. He's talked about man sleepwalking, especially Western men. They're asleep. Of course they're asleep. But what, what about advocacy journalism? Would he have had anything to say about that? Well, look, um, Marshall was interested in dialoguing and exploring ignorance for discovery rather than tossing around his knowledge for argument and display. The latter is debate. The former is dialogue. Most American tea promotes debate, not dialogue. Survivor, uh, pick a date. I mean, everything, everything is debate in the United States. And Jacques Ellul pointed out, who McLuhan talked, uh, respected and used in his work, uh, the great uh, French sociologist Jacques Ellul wrote the book Propaganda. He said propaganda begins when dialogue ends. So if you end dialogue with debate, then it's all propaganda. All and right. that's what we have today. All right, Nelson, we'll take a quick time out, come back and continue to talk about Marshall McLuhan and um, other matters right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're a fan of my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, consider becoming a premium subscriber. For less than $2 a month, premium subscribers receive two bonus commercial-free episodes every month, plus access to the vast back catalog of Conspiracy Unlimited. That's more than 370 episodes. To subscribe, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, and click on Get access to premium episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com 
and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes. Coming, Nelson Thal is here for the full two hours. Right now, we're talking about the life and times of the late Marshall McLuhan, who, as it turned out, was a conspiracy theorist and very much involved with intelligence agencies around the world. We were talking earlier about McLuhan's interest in conspiracies and secret societies, and and he had kind of a conspiratorial view of the world. Did he have sort of a a Rolodex of intelligence agents? Did he did he go? Did he move in those circles? Yeah, I, he moved in in very wide circles, and actually, the circles moved around Marshall. They came to him. He didn't have to move. That's the beauty of being the man at the top. They came to him in droves. The King of Jordan came to the to 39A, Queens Park, Crescent East, Toronto. They, they all came in. They flew in from all around the world. Kings, queens, prime ministers, um, CIA agents, KGB agents, ONI agents, Secret Service agents. French intelligence, <laughs> well, everybody was there. What did they want from him? Information. They wanted to study his mind, find out what he thinks about things. Uh, his works were not, there wasn't a big index of his works. So, um, uh, you know, Marshall sometimes would whip off an, an essay, classic stuff, hand it to Mark Stewart, a secretary, type it up. She'd send it out. And sometimes... He um, wouldn't keep a copy, and I used to fly down to St. Louis for Marshall, with sometimes without his knowledge. We were looking uh, just to get an article. We knew he was it was sent out, but we didn't have a copy. And I went and got it out of the university in St. Louis in the library. Why there? Was, Why St. Louis? Well, Marshall had it. Just had so happened. Marshall. Marshall was at many universities. It's just that St. Louis University, the the academic press there, was publishing him. As I said earlier, what made McLuhan famous in the academic world is, remember, within it, for those who aren't in university, the university has its own little culture, its own little coterie um, of an audience, and they read university publications, and there's a lot of academic journals and each college and each main discipline puts out an academic journal. And those top people, thinkers in that field, naturally get published by the university press. You know, there's University of Toronto Press. Mm-hmm. And St. Mike's has its own press, the different colleges at the university. Sure, sure. And they publish and they'll publish articles and those get distributed around and academics around the world will read the academic journals of St. Louis, of Toronto. Those are centers of English literature, Concordia at the at Concordia University, a, a classmate of mine, Dennis Murphy, set up the communications department there. Okay, so he was being courted by spies, by spies. spies. Well, operatives, too. Operatives, not just spies. What's the difference? They always talk about, well, what's the difference? Well, you know, some operatives uh, are people working for the CIA whose job is to um, put together an operation to kill, to, to, to spread grasshoppers in Cuba. 
an operative be running the money? Like Bannister was an operative during the JFK assassination, right? Right. Clay Shaw and these guys were operatives. They worked for the intelligence agencies, but they weren't spies. They were giving messages from headquarters and told to get some guns together and okay. start training guys to invade Cuba. And, you know, they're operatives, not spies. Did anyone but, ever try and recruit McLuhan? Oh, I'm sure they all tried to recruit McLuhan. But McLuhan was unrecruitable. <laughs> he couldn't be re- – you couldn't recruit McLuhan. Was he being, McLuhan, was he being spied on? Yeah, he was – oh, we'll come back to that. But let me just say this, that the McLuhan has had his own intelligence agency as the top because he was fed – McLuhan read everything written in the English language. He what? How is Marshall, that possible? He was a voracious and very fast reader. That's how it's possible. Oh, my was like he was like the uh, <laughs> he was you know he was a, a he he had the ability to really just consume the phonetic alphabet of books and read he was he read at high speeds high speed reading and comprehension he had magnificent well I can see why that would be useful to a, a an intelligence agency why they would want to recruit someone like him but back to my but, other but question McLuhan had more intelligence his his McLuhan's intelligence agency had more intel than all of the rest of the world's intelligence agency well he had his own intelligence agency tell me more about that who were these people and and well, anybody to, to, with a tape recorder is an t- intelligence agency as McLuhan true, said true so McLuhan had files and McLuhan had people sending him in and filling his files from around the world university professors people who were English literature majors ambassadors everybody who was interested in intelligence and was uh, was uh, interested in uh, comprehension and wondering what's going on and keeping in touch with the with the mass there's a new mass group was created and the masses showed up so mass man discarnate mass man right right Disco, right so what sort of intelligence was finding its way into McLuhan's files. Well, hey, listen, you know, when you have university professors and CEOs, take today the executive as dropout. When you get a lot of executives, that's the name of one of his books. uh, When you get a lot of top executives from the Pentagon and elsewhere dropping out and wanting to uh, sit and talk about what the heck's going on. That, that And uh, there's a lot of corruption that they can't stop and a lot of other nonsense going on, misuse of media, media is being abused, not used properly, and uh, they want to talk. And then McLuhan was like a, a, a global uh, psychiatrist. Everybody was wanting to lie on his couch. So you were his because archivist. Did you see – you were his archivist. Did you see any of that intelligence? Oh, of course, I saw it all. Remember, what happened was the marshal of the CIA, what happened was this, the Central Intelligence Agency in, in the late 50s had been consulting with um, Gordy Thompson of Bell Northern Labs and Barrington Nevitt, 
who co-authored the book Take Today, the Executive is Dropout, and many other, many academic essays and articles uh, Nevitt and McLuhan wrote. And um, so the CIA was knew and, and understood that uh, we're going to have to do something with our files. We've got files, we've got microfiche, but we haven't got optical card readers in use yet. We've got them. And they're not 100% accurate, but next year, the next few years, they will be more accurate. What are we going to do with this intelligence? Are we going to keep it in files? Are we going to take pictures? Are we going to take pictures and optical card readers and move it into other documents? How are we going to handle it? With which, Whichever way we use, what's the most important way to do it? What's the best for us as an intelligence agency? And what patterns can we detect there that right now we can't see because we only got the speed, but once we get into the computer, we're going to see patterns that we never saw before. And McLuhan sold that to them, to the Intel CIA, via the Department of Education, because the CIA turned to the Department of Education and sent a letter. And there's a letter on file that McLuhan had, and the letter, because he did Project 69 for the, for the Department of Education. So after that, when the CIA came to the Department of Education, they said, we're going to send McLuhan in to talk to you. And so McLuhan went in and they said, how are we going to open our files to just one man? He'll see it all. And the Department of Education sent a letter to the CIA saying, Dr. McLuhan's archives are vastly wider and more deep than anything you've got at the CIA. Oh, my gosh. So, again, back to what you saw. What did you see? They're just collecting data from around the world. McLuhan's doing it too, but McLuhan's got a head start on them because he's got a name. Right. But what did you see, Nelson? Well, I can't go into everything okay. that I okay. <laughs> I had to ask. I had to ask. Much to go through, but it, I can tell you this. I think that's when I started to become converted and, re, and, and, and read the Bible because everything that is said in there, it's in the files as to what they're trying to do. All right, I've got to take a time out. We'll uh, pick up on that point on the other side. Nelson Thal, media scientist, talking Marshall McLuhan right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We're back with media scientist Nelson Thal, protege of the late Marshall McLuhan, his official archivist. So I'm trying to imagine all of this intelligence that's coming to McLuhan from his, as you described them, his own intelligence network, his own intelligence agency. And they're sending him stuff, feeding him stuff. Is this all being stored on campus in like like filing cabinets, sensitive information? Well, some of it's stored, remember, as, as I said, some of it's stored uh, at the university, some of it's stored at um, at his office. Uh, things come in, he takes things from the office home and home to the office, so there's no problem with that. But, um, you know, he's sort of like 221 Baker Street. Uh, Sherlock Holmes had all his stuff there, he never kept the door locked. Because he, he, he felt that if anybody tried to steal it, we'd find out who it was. You can't fool us. And uh, so there's no need to keep it really locked. And, you know, that's the way Sherlock Holmes had it. And Marshall was like that. He had it under lock and key. Don't kid yourself. The, the filing cabinet had a lock. But it wasn't any high, sophisticated electronic alarm system right. or anything. Like that, it was just a, a simple uh, filing cabinets that are fireproof. 
Okay, but did he have information that could have brought down governments, the Canadian government? Well, I, I think he, he, had, he had lots of information that could have brought down the Canadian government about what's really going on behind the scenes. Uh, but um, I, I think he knew what his limits were and the red line and what he could get away with. But he kept a lot of stuff uh, with his students and hidden from the public, that's for sure. Only, only grad students got to, be, to go to that level. I'm just thinking, though, in terms of, let's say, JFK uh, assassination research, which is your passion, your forte uh, for over 50 years. Now, I mean, is 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 it possible that there there are bits? Let me just hang on. Are there bits of intelligence in Marshall McLuhan's collection that could that have never been that have never come to light that could shed new light on the assassination? Well, there, pro- there could be, but I would imagine that it's been sanitized by now, that's for sure, since it was all sold to the government. Ah. That's why the government bought it, so they could sanitize a lot of it. But, you know, listen, Mar- uh, Mrs. McLuhan, in the letters of Marsha McLuhan, published a lot of letters, and if you read the letters, there's all sorts of things in there that could cause a lot of problems, and that book is given mass circulation so it's not as if there's something that hasn't been really gotten out there his letter to McLuhan's letter to the uh, Royal Highness Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands is in that book and it's a barn burner that could bring down the whole the whole (laughs) club of the Isles well tell me a little bit about what what, what's in that letter well, McLuhan basically exposes the ruling elite for being a dictatorship uh, and a group of people who are not interested in the common man. Prince. He's insulted. He's insulted by their by the way they, they their attitude towards the uh, useless eaters. Right. And the one, and they want to bring the population down. They want to control the population. So McLuhan, look, McLuhan had read the UN documents. Yeah, you know, Rich, all this is in the UN documents. All this stuff, it's right out there in the open. Just that nobody reads it. <laughs> did did Marshall? Uh, did he have an interest? Uh, did he? research the Bilderbergs, the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations? Did he write about them? Absolutely. And that letter to Prince Bernhard was because was when he was invited to Bilderberg. And by the way, McLuhan went to Bilderberg. He got on the plane at the last minute. He didn't take a passport. He got through the customs in in Denmark or wherever he went to. It's in Bilderberg. I, I think it was in Denmark that year. Uh, it would show on the letter. I don't recall right now the exact address where he sent it to Bilderberg. But in the Netherlands, he's the king of... So he sent them this letter, and he went all the way there without a passport and walked in on them and basically denigrated them and told them how they're just a bunch of old men from Iron Mountain, rearview mirror, hardening of the categories, out of touch with what's going on, and that they're just absolutely making a mess of things in their control of the money supplies and the the big operations of the Western world. He basically, it was the Bilderbergs. He was before the managers. And he just basically said the managers of the system told them that they were out of touch. And a lot of the managers were also sprinkled with owners. 
So he went to the top and met with the owners of the system and the managers of the system at Bilderberg. And that letter, it was in 1969, and that letter is published in the letters to Marsha McLuhan. You can look it up. It's in the index. All right. It's a great letter. Okay, I'll uh, take a time out, come back. I, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Marshall McLuhan barnstorming the Bilderberg meeting when we come back with Nelson Thal. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, before we get back to my conversation with Nelson Thal, get on up to my website, strangeplanet.ca. It's been completely redesigned and it looks great. Special thanks to my webmaster, Rick Forgus. It's much, much easier to navigate. And once there, again, strangeplanet.ca, scroll down to the bottom to Inner Sanctum. That's my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. Click on that. And register. I just need your email. Takes but a second. Once you've registered, you'll start receiving Inner Sanctum every month delivered right to your email inbox for free. Strangeplanet.ca. Nelson Thal stays with us. And uh, just a reminder, he will be with us into the next hour as well. We're going to finish our discussion on Marshall McLuhan. We're learning all sorts of things we didn't know about uh, this amazing Canadian. You mentioned going into the, uh, the last break that he stormed into a Bilderberg meeting. Uh, now, what did they, why did they invite him? Did they know he was going to go in there and, and slap them around? Well, I, I, I think that they were so worried about him that they were prepared to put up with whatever they got from him. And they wanted just to feel him out on their idea of viewpoint on life. Uh, and um, the the uh, oligarchical, aristocratical view of the ruling elite that he ran into there, and um, he, I guess they were p- probing to see. The purpose of the meeting was to probe and see whether he would play ball with them, because what he had that was getting out there could be radioactive and a threat, and cause a brush fire in the establishment. And so they were testing them to see if they could get him on their side, so to speak, and, and uh, get on board the train, the Malthus train. And did he ever get invited back? No, he never got invited back. And I, I, he, I, he'd be surprised if he was. He didn't want to be invited back. He wanted to show his disdain for their attitude towards mankind. And the fact that they're not just useless eaters, every person is made in the image of God, imagio Dei, uh, whereas the oligarchs, they still believe that man is a, an animal, no different, and therefore has no rights and doesn't have the right to think for itself. And they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle that got out with the Reformation when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the wall of the Wittenberg Church and Rome lost its power over our mindsets. Before we finish the hour, what other things was McLuhan trying to to tell us about the impact of technology in the mainstream media on the culture? And I'm talking about the negative impacts here. If, if he were standing or talking to us right now, 
What would he be, what would he be telling us about what to look out for in terms of the power of, let's say, television? Yeah, I, what he would say is he would say, take the laws of media as I've developed them so that you understand that these are the natural laws of media and start putting together your own, it's called a tetrad. They're made up of four. The four laws of media are the four. They call it a tetrad. Make up your own tetrad and make yourself aware of the tetrad on each technology and therefore draw from that an understanding of the grammars and effect it's going to have on your sensory ratios, your sensory topologies, and your mindset and your ability to perceive the world. We had hundreds and hundreds of years of a technology that put us into a visual space of immense magnitude compared to the other senses. We went up into heavy visual space. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> we, uh, we got so the effect of the phonetic alphabet and high-speed printing made us to the point where visually we were so stressed, our view of reality was so skewed and was so wrong because of the stress on the visual sense alone, Louis Pasteur was thrown out of the medical profession for claiming that invisible bacteria was making his patients sick. That's only about 175 years ago, Rich. Not long ago, you and I would be put in jail for saying that invisible bacteria was making us sick. That's right. how crazy, that's how skewed and out of whack and unrealistic Western man got because of the phonetic alphabet, the Gutenberg Galaxy. And that's what made him famous was his book, The Gutenberg Galaxy, which talked about that that devious, invisible uh nefarious he called it a nefarious and insidious effect of these technologies so that was what was behind media science and media ecology so the the owners of the system that that run the tv networks what is it they understood obviously what McLuhan was talking about they didn't want their secrets divulged but there's subliminal effects. They didn't want their subliminal effects affected and made public. And McLuhan wrote the foreword to the book Subliminal Seduction by Wilson Brian Key, which is a key book that people should be, if they want to know, get the book Subliminal Seduction with the foreword by McLuhan. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about yeah. the subliminal seduction and, and the power of the subliminal message in television. Yeah. Well, right today, they've got it so subliminal that they're able to alter our emotions from the microwave towers. Hello, yes. Colonel Beasley. Just read Beasley's book, Colonel Ted, Colonel uh, uh, called the Oblivion. Okay. Uh, what else can you tell us about subliminal messaging in television? Well, it started with Coca-Cola in the 50s. They started to put uh, subliminal messages into the ads, and their Coke sales doubled. And they put pictures of deserts and pictures of cactuses and all sorts of subliminal messages, and it made people feel thirsty, and they went out and bought Coke. And what, they, what happened was a guy by the name of Dr. Petzl, P-O-E-T-Z-E, had a machine called the tactistoscope. This was written up in a, in a university paper. Uh, there's a book on it about uh, Petzl and his tactistoscope because he took people who were very dream-friendly, always had lots of dreams, and he went and he designed images that they would have never seen in their lifetime. 
And he started to flash them because the tactistoscope flashes images into your mind at high speed, higher than your ability to consciously see it. And he would flash this. It's a tactistoscope, it's called. And he would flash these images and he'd study the people's dreams. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, the images started to come out in these people's dreams. In the morning, they would take their dreams. They would say, this is what I saw. This is the shape. This is the color of the things that was flashed in front of them. So they started to realize that subliminal imaging had very, very, could affect purchasing behavior. And again, these are, this would be a single frame in film that you couldn't really even pick up with the naked eye. It would go by so quickly, but your subconscious would pick it up. So they were inserting these images, uh, surreptitiously, single frames. How, how do you suppose they're, they're, I mean, if that was 60 years ago, what are they doing now with subliminal messages? Well, they're doing the same thing that they've been doing all along, Richard. And uh, it's a two, it's a, it's a one, two punch. Number one, in order to get you to be docile enough to believe some of this nonsense in the fifties and sixties, they put fluoride in the drinking water as a, which made the mind docile. And they're still doing that today. So that part of it hasn't changed, but. They put it over our lifetime, it went into the TVs, it went into the advertising, it went into all the media, it went into the radio stations as subaudible images, subaudible audio, subaudible, they called it subaudible images. Uh, you, they changed the middle C frequency. <laughs> Right, right, right. yes. Uh, The Prince of the Power of the Air changed the frequency of middle C. That goes by unannounced and not talked about, except uh, media scientists are aware of the change in middle C and what that means, and that had a big effect. Right, well, I've I've done an entire episode on my old podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, about about just that. Uh, Listen, we are out of time for this hour, so hang on, Nelson. We'll come back and we'll move on to to other matters uh, in the news, including uh, Trump and the takedown of the Fed, and of course, what else? COVID-19. Back with more, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada. Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Hello to everyone listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Hi there to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Hey there to those streaming us on zoomerradio.ca and the free Zoomer radio app. And of course, those who stream us on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. However, there is no live stream on YouTube tonight. That will resume next week. Keep in mind, this is a pre-recorded program. And before we get back to my conversation with media scientist Nelson Thal, a quick programming note. A quick programming note. Next week, documentary filmmaker Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions joins me in the first hour. 
Allie produced the groundbreaking documentaries UFOs, Angels, and Gods, and Goliath Rising, Hybrids, Nephilim, and Titans. Allie also has a webinar coming up he'll be telling us about that will address the intersection of biblical prophecy as well as the UFO ET issue. The second hour next week will be open lines once again, and I'll be doing more open lines in the coming weeks. Obviously, there is so much happening right now uh, between coronavirus and the widespread protests in the U.S. and now here in Canada, as well as the, uh, the rioting taking place in the U.S. And these widespread protests in the U.S. and Canada after the horrific deaths of uh, black man George Floyd in Minneapolis who was in police custody and died after a white police officer kneeled on his neck. That police officer has since been charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. That video still haunts and sickens me. Also, the recent death of a black woman in the High Park neighborhood of Toronto, 29-year-old Regis Korczynski-Paquette, who died after a fall from a balcony while police were on the scene responding to a domestic dispute call. And it has been alleged that she was pushed from that balcony, although at this point there doesn't seem to be any evidence for that. But in the absence of evidence, people are filling the void with hearsay and rumor and so forth, and things are coming to a a, a boiling point. But these horribly tragic incidents are quite apart from the violent rioting taking place across the United States uh, these last several nights in Minneapolis and Portland, Atlanta, Dallas, and elsewhere, where Antifa appears to be sending its members across state lines uh, to participate in what looks very much to me like a coordinated attempt at creating instability, destruction, looting, uh, violence. It's very clear to me that destroying businesses, black-owned and white-owned businesses, stealing Louis Vuitton handbags and and big-screen TVs from from Target is a very odd way of grieving for the death of George Floyd. Uh, In fact, one has absolutely nothing to do with the other, and hopefully by next week things will have calmed down, and here in Canada we'll have some more information about what happened to this young woman. It's still being investigated. Next week, second hour, we can talk about all of these things and no doubt coronavirus. Right now, we get back to my previously recorded conversation with media scientist Nelson Thal. Nelson, how are you holding on there? Very good, Rich. It's been enjoyable. We're going to leave Marshall McLuhan behind and move on to other matters. I wanted to pick up on something that you and I discussed several months ago on my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. And this was back actually in late March. So just the very early going of the the quarantine. And at that time, you told me that you believed, had good reason to believe, President Trump was using COVID-19 to take down the Fed, the U.S. Federal Reserve. Explain what you meant by that, and then we'll get into that uh, in more detail. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think we may be witnessing the biggest media-generated mass hysteria since Orson Welles' 1938 radio broadcast, War of the Worlds. I really mean that. It's a worldwide global mass hysteria. And of course, we talked about how really it's because the um, the New World Order gang, which are uh, mostly uh, made up of the ruling elite, the owners of the system, they are anxious to 
bring in a new way of life, population control. It's not like this is any secret. In 1932, there was a eugenics society public meeting in New York City sponsored by the Harrimans and others. Getting rid of the useless eaters, et cetera, et cetera, as we know. I mean, it's not like these guys hide it anymore. So um, we have this this whole um, COVID thing, which we know on many levels, on a biblical level, certainly it's God's wrath on mankind, getting man's attention. But as we said, you know, um, it's a pyramid of power. We live in the pyramid of power. The nations, uh, every level finds a means to get the lower level to comply with it without knowing the big picture or the raison d'etre behind the operation. And that's how that's the pyramid of power and how it's always worked from the top down. Um, they always Im- comply and get people to comply and go along with their plan, but never tell that person what the big picture is and why they're doing it or what the plan is. Everything's cellularized. But um, we know that uh, the, it's been the dream of the patriots since 1912 to um, get back control of America, America's money supply and the control of money. And uh, that's what always was their plan. Now, I'm not saying that Trump is a make it happen on purpose, my hop guy, but he's a lie hop guy. Let it happen on purpose and use it as an opportunity to do something which he was looking to do for and his group, the Patriots, have been looking to do since 1912, over 100 years. You say 1912 because the Federal yeah. Reserve was created in 19, 1913, I think it was. 13, that's right. 1912 was the trigger to do it, which was the Titanic. Okay. To get rid of Strauss, Guggenheim, and Astor. That's old news. We've talked about that before. But this is what was seen as an opportunity to now use Congress and Remember, I mean, I mean, the Patriots now had control of Congress because they controlled the friends, the Patriots friends, and they controlled the the Patriots controlled their enemies because the enemies, of the Patriots were so great uh, sinners, shall we say, I mean, bail worshippers. And they, they what they did was so uh, had to be covered up that um, they knew what was going on and used it as extortion. So even their enemies were in favor, and they used that power in the Congress to uh, to nationalize the Fed. And it's interesting to note that even Schiff, remember one of the fa- major families that looked over on behalf of the Vatican and was controlling the Fed, was the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the Kuhnlobes, the Warburgs, and the Schiff family who build the Trans-Siberian Railroad. That goes into Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. We won't go there. But but the thing is, what's happened is this, that now they've undone the, the, the they brought the act before the, the Supreme Court and they uh, and they had the Supreme Court rule that it was unconstitutional and they've gone ahead behind the scenes and thus nationalized the Federal Reserve. They've nationalized it. So as a foreign entity owned it, now they've seized those assets. All right. So let me just back up they on a couple of things. First of all, you mentioned Adam Schiff. So he is related to family. the same Schiff family that was instrumental in bringing about the Federal Reserve in 1913. 
along with the Warburgs exactly. and the Loeb's and so forth. All right. Now, right. you mentioned that they nationalized the Fed. This was all done behind the scenes and it was taken before the Supreme Court. How did they do this? What was the mechanism for nationalizing the Fed and what does that mean exactly? Well, it means now that basically the shareholders of the Fed are part of the tr- represented by the US government via the Treasury Department. The US Treasury Department now has the right once again to start printing Although it didn't have, it's not once again, it's for the first time the Treasury can now start printing centralized money, which hasn't happened before in the United States. And this opportunity just, it, it fell in his lap and he could now, he could go ahead and do this behind the scenes. It wouldn't become seen because, you know, they probably published it in a very small Hansard like publication in the Library of Congress. You'll find it in 20 years that this is what was done and it was done. And who's going to talk about it? They're all worried about COVID. You ever see a news report? It's all COVID, 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 COVID. So right when the distraction started, the mass-generated mass hysteria took over, he hid behind that to take back control of the Fed and nationalize it and, and, and use the opportunity to start sending the new money to everybody because those checks aren't in Federal Reserve well, they may be in Federal Reserve, but not old Federal Reserve. It's now under the Federal Reserve, and you'll see probably signed by the uh, – it'll probably be signed by the president. I wouldn't be surprised if Trump signs these bills now, Oh, the, the notes, uh, the dollars. Right. Well, he, he, certainly wanted to, he, he certainly wanted his signature on the checks, which is a brilliant piece of political campaigning, I suppose. These are the emergency funds that are going to – the American taxpayers, but and he'll use that. He'll use that to put it on the bills once he prints those next. Okay, so how does that happen in practical terms when you nationalize the Federal Reserve? So we know, like in a country like Venezuela, if they want to nationalize the oil company or something, it would send troops in and they would say, "We're taking over." How do they do that with the Federal Reserve? Do they go to the, each district branch of the Federal Commerce Reserve? Department. The Commerce Department as well as the Solicitor General and the Attorney General, all put together the paperwork and they seize, the, just like, just like um, Jacob Chaikin seized the assets of the Brown-Harriman Bank under Trading with the Enemy Act. Same thing. These guys under, uh, under the act, the Congressional Act that they passed, they gave them the government the right to seize the assets of the Federal Reserve, seize the assets from the shareholder. They've taken over control. It's probably also the way they're going to get the money back from China by seize those bonds. That's another issue. But it's the same legal way. They do it to the lawyers, Richard. The lawyers can do anything. And government lawyers prepare all the paperwork and put it through the Congress and it's passed. And it's signed by the president and it's law. That's how it happened. And as a result, the Treasury no longer pays money to the Federal Reserve Bank for the use of its currency. So they're saving that payment. And that's why Schiff is so angry, because they're going to lose their revenue. They've lost their revenue, the Fed. Those five families in the Vatican have all lost the revenue that they were getting because they controlled America's money supply. And America is now a true democracy. Well, not true, not perfect, an imperfect but true democracy. So uh, the, the the effect of this, as you say, the Federal Reserve, which basically creates money out of thin air and then charges interest, uh, 
that now reverts back to the U.S. Treasury. So when American taxpayers take their their checks, their emergency relief checks to the bank, they're going to get U.S. Treasury notes now instead of U.S. Federal Reserve notes. It'll say that on the on the money. No, it'll say U.S. dollars like it used to do. Okay, greenbacks, real money, but printed by the U.S. Treasury rather than the Federal Reserve. Right. They basically they've neutered the Federal Reserve. It's basically a flow through. It's just a intercompany account now. Okay, but but those checks have been out for a while. So does that mean that these new greenbacks are now in circulation? Have you seen this money? I've seen some of it, but let me say this, that I don't think there's a lot of money in circulation yet because most people deposit it at a bank. And when they draw cash, the bank gives them the cash. But the banks have a lot of the old dollars, Federal Reserve notes. But because the Federal Reserve is now a wholly owned sub of the U.S. government, it doesn't matter now. They're in control. The U.S. government and the people of the United States are in control of their money supply. And that's why they're so angry, because a new world order is being pushed out of the United States institutions that it infiltrated over the last, well, since before 1912 or even earlier. But now they're being pushed out. And uh, that's as they it's a scorched earth policy they have. But they'll be removed, but it's a scorched earth. And all the truth is coming out about Epstein's Island and about the Baal worship and the children, the, the slaves. It's, it's, it's sickening to talk about it. And indeed it is. The effect of the U.S. Eventually the banks, eventually the banks will run out of passing on their old dollars and they'll call up the Treasury and say, could you please send us some more currency? Uh, we're uh, the, the Chase Manhattan Bank and the, we've pretty well, uh, uh, you know, used up our old currency and eventually the new currency will start to get mixed in with the old and eventually it'll just, <laughs> it'll be like it never happened. Oh, they'll look at the bills. And, and of course, I'm sure there'll be some point where they bring it to light and they'll probably use it, go to your bank if you've got any old bills. And because of COVID, we there's a lot of, it's possible that the germs can still be on the bills when we are issuing new bills. It'll just fit in perfectly with their plans. And the effect of this will be what? Will it, will it mean anything Will the debt be written off or will it be excused? Well, that's, another, that's a whole different issue now. Uh, now that issue is the debt issue. We were, and what we're talking about is the currency and the Fed. And the, the two are totally uh, separate topics, right? So we could get into that if you want to talk about what I think is going to happen with China and the debt. Because I think the handwriting is on the wall for China because – they're the fall guy. China's the patsy. <laughs> yeah, they're the fall guy. They're the patsy. And they've been caught and they can't get out of it. The Americans are good. Uh, not even the Americans. The Ang- the, uh, the the Assyrian commandos, the Waffen SS uh, aligned with the, the throne of uh, England have uh, have a, are, are good at pulling off these, the as we know, they're very good expert at pulling off these patsy operations i mean just look at the connection between the waffen ss and the kennedy assassination as detailed in may brussels great uh, article that everybody should read 
But you're not suggesting that Trump is aligned with what Joseph Farrow would call the Nazi international. Uh, No, he's not aligned with them at all. He's aligned with the patriots. He's not aligned with it. He's been evoked. He's a a tribal chieftain. Uh, He's he's a Manasseh tribal chief, and he's been brought up by the by the that. Look, the United States was started by Manasseh and Ephraim, two of Jacob's tribes. Britain as well. The Union Jacob, the Union Jack, that's their flag. Even the American flag is, is, is uh, based on, a, on, a, on the British flag, on, on certain, right. certainly just, color-wise. Yes, you and I have talked in the past about the lost tribes of Israel and what happened to them, uh, which is what you're alluding to now, and yeah. we should do another so show on that. But let me just ask China, you. China's the fall guy. I okay. think China's the fall guy here. Let's go back to that. They're okay. the fall guy. They're the patsy. But just so I'm clear and my listeners are clear, this operation of creating this bioweapon, whether it's lethal or not, and blaming it on China was not necessarily Trump's operation. It was, as you refer to them, sort of the, well, I'll use Joseph Farrell's term, the Nazi international. This was their operation. Trump, as a patriot, simply stood back and then took advantage of it. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's yeah. The NMW. There's no doubt the NWO was behind this. I mean, look at who got involved. The who. You look at the who and how it's come out. There was great corruption at that level. So you know, Trump wasn't behind that. Trump's part of that Patriot gang. They're just on the sidelines, and they've made use of this. This is to their advantage. Is it fair to say then that there are two deep states? There's the the deep state that is is beholden to the new world order, and then there are the 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 patriots, which are also sort of underground. They're they're well, they're they're another deep state, an, another. Well, the thing is this that the, they they um uh, they are a deep state on that level, absolutely for sure. Um, there's a lot of states, but there's only a few deep states. But remember, we're headed to a time where the world uh, government uh, and the world religion each crown a new emperor, a final, right? Uh, the emperor who's going to be the Antichrist. Right, right. But uh, so I think that there's deep state. The world government is a deep state and the world religions are a deep state. The world government's a deep state, which is the EU, right, and its group. I meant within the United States, within the, within the United bureaucracy. Well, there's, well, we th- we really have the patriot movement that created the country is definitely a deep state, and are rising at this time and are taking back power and taking back and taking over after having for over a hundred years been shut out of government and its apparatus. It's a coup. Remember the, the JFK. The JFK was a coup. The uh, the New World Order guys took over. Um, the, the, well, it was it was the Waffen SS, right? The, the British Crown, Shaw, and let's go back to basics. Who was charged by the government? Shaw and Bloomfield, right? I'm sorry, British I... Crown, the British Crown, Shaw, Clay Shaw, Clay Shaw, and I... more. Uh, and Bloomfield. Bloomfield? Who was Bloomfield? Uh, Bloomfield was a director of the Swiss company Permindex that Charles de Gaulle publicly threw out of France 
and, and at the time publicly said that they were trying to assassinate him. Uh, the movie, um, there's a movie about... Uh, oh, Parallax uh, about View, the, Parallax View. No, but the one about the trying to assassinate uh, de Gaulle. Oh, Day of the things. Jackal, Day of the Jackal? Yeah, Day of the Jackal, exactly. So he was a member of Permindex, and Permindex, we know, is one of the companies associated and involved in the Kennedy assassination. So Bloomfield was named by Garrison. So he was and he also turned out later to be head of the North American desk for British Secret Service. And he was a Canadian. I don't know if you mentioned that. He already. was a Can- Right. Yeah, I don't think his nationality matters. Uh, in, well, in a it's, whole lot. it's of interest a, because we're. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the British connection. He was a Canadian nationality. All right. McGill, but but, but Garrison, Garrison didn't get around to charging him because <laughs> because why? Because his time was limited and his case against Clay Shaw fell apart because five of his key witnesses all were either murdered or in an mental institution. And he couldn't bring them to court. Hmm. Amazing. The Conspiracy Show returns right after this. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Before we get back to my conversation with Nelson Thal and further to this rioting that's going on in the United States, I just wanted to report here that uh, President Trump has labeled the anti-fascist action group Antifa as a terrorist organization, and he has declared war on anarchist protesters. Uh, this was tweeted out uh, earlier today. The tweet comes as chaos has erupted across the United States. Uh, Over the last few days, following the death of George Floyd, uh, Trump said, quote, the United States of America will be designating Antifa as a terrorist organization. He he goes on to write, the lamestream media is doing everything within their power to foment hatred and anarchy. Uh, He writes, as long as everybody understands what they're doing, that they are fake news and truly bad people with a sick agenda, we can easily work through them to greatness. At least 30 large uh, demonstrations have taken place across cities in the United States, while the National Guard were also deployed to Minnesota. Uh, Trump also criticized the mayor of Minneapolis, who is a Democrat, for failing to control the protests. He also declared the protesters as looters and anarchists while accusing them of dishonoring the memory of Mr. Floyd. I would have to agree with him on that count. I don't think you can call them protests at this point. There are legitimate, peaceful protests going on, but this uh, looting, firebombing of businesses, even targeting of police has absolutely nothing to do with the unfortunate death of uh, George Floyd. That is being used as an excuse, uh, but I want to be clear. There is no way this looting can be excused. But we'll talk about this more uh, next week, I'm sure. Media scientist Nelson Thal stays with us. So I want to just get back on on track then with with Trump and uh, nationalizing the Fed. And yes. um, it's kind of interesting that, you you know, we, we got on to talking about the Kennedy assassination because many people believe that in part, one of the reasons Kennedy was taken out was because he tried to circumvent the Federal Reserve. Uh, many people believe that that was also part of the reason Lincoln, because there wasn't a Federal Reserve, but there was a, a, a charter for a sort of a central bank in uh, America at the time that was funding both 
the North and the South. And it was, and then even before that, there was, um, uh, Andrew Jackson who was trying to challenge the charter. And there was an assassination attempt supposedly on him as well. So how is, is it that Trump, it, it was able to pull off what these other presidents couldn't do? Well, I guess on one level, you'd say that it's the intervention of the Holy Spirit in order to um, uh, bring America once again and be from Manasseh, the tribes, out of uh, Joseph's children, out of captivity and slavery. They've been in captive. They've been captive to this power, especially since 1912. And the major big coup, of course, was in 45 with the bulge, took over the Pentagon. And 63, they took over the White House. And it's well detailed, as I mentioned earlier, in May Brussels, great biblical, well-designed piece, uh, heavily documented the Nazi assassination, the Nazi connection to the JFK assassination. So uh, it, it's always been their ploy to get back the patriots, and the patriots are the, the pendulum is swinging their way. You can only keep a coup going for how many generations can a grandfather pass down the emotion to his grandson and great grandson? Eventually, it peters out, and these guys aren't prepared to fight and give their life for the same cause. Although there's, there is still uh, plenty of fight in the deep state, and I, I wanted to talk yeah. about what's happening with the economy here for a moment, because uh, they, they, the New World Order, I guess, the deep state, ha- ha- has used the pandemic uh, to, to crater the, uh, the U.S. economy, the world economy, in fact, um, and... Trump has been very vocal about wanting to open up the economy. A number of states, some states never locked down, South Dakota, other states never locked down. Uh, but even those that did are now are, are, are starting to open up. Uh, we, ha- we have probably 40 million Americans now in total who have filed for, uh, for unemployment. I mean, we're talking about depression era level levels of unemployment, but they're trying to open up the economy, except New York and California remain in pretty much a lockdown and they constitute 20% of the United States GDP. And of course, they're both controlled by democratic uh, uh, governors. So what's going to, how is this going to play out? Is the United States going to recover? Will it recover in time for the November election? What do you see? Well, first of all, as a media scientist, I'm not an economist, but what I would say is this. If you look at the big picture, you'll see it doesn't seem difficult. There's a big, big war going on that's been going on for hundreds of years. McLuhan called it the ancient quarrel in modern America. That's a good book uh, article. They could read about it. So this has been written about it. And what's going to happen in this battle? I have no idea. I don't know. But one thing's for sure. I really don't think that the workforce has been that damaged. Now, the workforce, if you look at the numbers, most of the workforce have weathered this virus. They've, 80% of them have had it and come out of it. Most of them didn't even know it. So they're in good health. They're ready to go back to work. Now, the, the I would say not as an economist, but if the workforce is healthy, they can go back to work. I imagine they're going to go back to work and they're going to start to gun the economy up again. If you were to say to me, you're wrong, your statistics are wrong, 
This workforce has been decimated. The real numbers of the real numbers of death is 40% of Americans have died or 25% have died. We're keeping it quiet. We're covering it up. If you tell me that's the case, then I'd say, uh-oh, I think we haven't got a good, strong workforce to go back to work and get the economy going. So it depends what's really happened. Has they've succeeded in killing more people than we're being told? Or are we being told they've killed a lot less people? Well, clearly there's a lot less. I mean, the official number now is over 100,000, but clearly those numbers have been padded. And we know that because Dr. Burks, who is uh, on the the White House task force on coronavirus, told us back in April they were going to report fatalities in a very liberal fashion. In other words, if you died with COVID-19, you were considered to have died from COVID-19. So we don't know by what. Why should I believe their numbers? Their numbers, I'm not going to lie on. Maybe how many body bags were they told were we told were ordered i thought they they ordered millions of body bags well so maybe it's been millions of people who've died not a hundred thousand they they usually divide by 10 maybe it's 10 million of the 300 mm-hmm. i don't know but i'm not prepared to accept their number no that's what i'm saying i don't either but i'm saying rather than a hundred thousand it's 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 orders of magnitude less than that that have really died from COVID 19 maybe a hundred thousand people have died with COVID 19 but but as we as Italy recently reported, ninety six percent of the deaths in Italy were people who had other underlying conditions, comorbidities. So again, this is part of the fear that you were talking about earlier in the hysteria that this has all been ginned up. It's and but yeah. to your point about the labor force, and we'll pick up on this on the other side. Uh, I, I agree. The labor force is ready to go back to work. The question is, is there the demand and is there the supply? There's always a demand. They love it. They're not. The culture hasn't changed that much. They're looking forward to get back to hockey, back to gambling, back to prostitution. They want to get back. There's a huge <laughs> demand for it. You seem to be optimistic. You're saying that the, because the workforce has not been damaged, that they're ready to go back to work once we open things up. My concern is because people have not been working for three months, you have entire sectors, the airline industry, the tourist industry, hotels, many service jobs are gone. And I don't know that they're going to come back because many small businesses, people have lost, uh, their lives have been destroyed. They poured all their blood, sweat and tears and all of their savings into these businesses and they're all gone. Well, my answer is this. There's always been fluctuations and new technologies obsolescing old uh, old workforces. As long as the workforce is healthy, the system will readjust itself. People will retrain. They'll eventually come back as long as the workforce is healthy in a free environment, in a free society, capitalist society. And if if a one business goes, there's always new opportunities. There's always a silver lining because men have hope and men uh, are anxious to and are ingenious. They really are. They'll look for ways to create new spots, new productivity. That's what the United States have weathered. Let's face it. They weathered the uh, 
They weathered the telegraph. They weathered the phone. These were disruptions to their economy, new jobs, old guys out of work, uh, telephone, television, radio. They weathered all those, the workforce, because it was a healthy workforce. They had milk and cheese and meat and good food products, and they were well healthy. I think that's the key, the food chain. As long as they can feed these people and keep them healthy, we're fine. All right, hold on, Nelson. We'll come back and uh, continue our discussion. Nelson Thal, media scientist right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Nelson Thal, media scientist, protege of the late Marshall McLuhan, is here. Before we get back to that conversation, just a reminder that if you love The Conspiracy Show, you're also going to love my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, and new episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And all you need to do to subscribe is go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday and Wednesday and now available on Spotify. Will the economy recover in time or sufficiently in time for the November election? In other words, to make, to ensure the Patriots reelection. Well, I'd say that, remember, on the top level, God chooses the our leaders, and I don't know that there's any history of where he would bring somebody in for four years and then boot them out. Uh, but I don't know that we don't, that, that's it. But I'll say this, that I think that President Trump has more money as a candidate to put forth his platform to as many people as powerfully as any other president has had. He will have a war chest that will be equal to the gross national product of a number of nations put together. He's got um, the top people raising the funds and money. Want, even if you hate Trump, you still may write a check to him because uh, what's he going to do for you your, for your for your portfolio? What's happened to your portfolio under Trump? It's gone up. And ultimately, you may hate the guy, but you need the dividend. So you hold your nose and you vote for him. I, I, I think that and with the billions that he's going to have in advertising, he'll put it so that just before the election, within five, six, seven weeks, there'll be a blanket on people. They, morning, noon and night. There'll be a, an ad campaign program like never's been done ever before, and I'm sure he's drawing it up now. Well, it's been suggested that in November, Trump won't be running against Biden. He'll be running against election fraud. And this push by the Democrats to bring in uh, mail-in absentee ballots, and of course, Trump has tweeted out that this is just rife for 
for be- election fraud, which has been demonstrated in the past. Uh, although, you know, uh, Twitter um, basically said, oh, we fact checked that. That's not true. That's just complete uh, rubbish. Even Jerry Nadler, California Congressman Jerry Nadler, in 2004, in a committee hearing, this was just recently released on, I think, YouTube, Nadler, who is now saying, oh, there's no evidence of election fraud with absentee ballots. He was warning about absentee ballot uh, fraud in 2004 and was citing example after example. So if the absentee ballot goes through for the general election, will Trump be able to overcome that? Well, I I don't think there's anything that's going to come personally that's going to prevent him from being president. However, I would say this, that, um, you know, uh, when every when Trump uh, appointed the leaders of the Supreme Court, I'm sure a lot of people were looking to see. Well, did uh, did Trump want to know what you did on abortion? No, no, he would never say that. He never, but they'd ask it. What did he, what did he say? You know, did he say anything about abortion? No, no, remember. So while they were thinking of abortion and all that other nonsense, what they never asked the judges was. Um, if I rule and pass, like, remember, under the under the act that George Bush, President Bush passed the Patriot Act, notice it's called the Patriot Act. It's so that the Patriot in office had, can seize full power, the power of emperor. So Trump already has the power under law to just say, look, I'm putting this to the Supreme Court. I'm in charge. And the Supreme Court's going to rule what? Fraud. He has the he, he he's got the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is 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 not going to is not going to allow that. Being he's chosen the Supreme Court judges, you can bet this is what he was talking to the Supreme Court judges about about the Patriot Act. And would you stand by the Patriot Act if? I decided I listened to the hearings. I never heard them once. Well, they were in camera sometimes, but not much. I I never heard them once bring up that issue. They don't talk about the Patriot Act. So Trump and Trump, they can't say, well, you passed that act yourself. Because what do you mean I passed that act? That act was passed by George Bush. Okay, Nelson, stay put. We have one more segment ahead of us, so we will get to that. When the show returns right after this, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Nelson Thal stays with us. Nelson, once we finally get out from underneath this coronavirus, what is, people keep talking about the new normal. I don't know what that means. But what is the post-pandemic world going to look like, in your estimation, as a media scientist? Yeah, I think um, we're going to have uh, the disappearance more and more of the middle class, which is what's, I think, going to be a problem. Crime will escalate. Uh, I think we'll have a tendency to move more to walled villages within the cities. Um, Shades of Mad Max. Um, The rule of law is obviously beforehand was on dicey ground and it's it's been it's on dicey ground more and more as a result of this. And the tribes who uh, 
who assimilated very well are retribalizing themselves. And um, I think that means uh, more tribal, people will be less visual, more tribal, more oral, oral culture space. Music will change with the times. It always does. Um, uh, and so I think that uh, on, on, on many levels, there's, you know, there's good news and there's sort of bad news on that level as far as uh, what the culturally, but uh, Canada and America, I think are, remember where they're two brothers with different nations. And I think uh, when two brothers are together, just thinking about how two brothers act and remember that the nations subconsciously within their subconscious have this tribal identity and by, are bound by it. We know that. At the Peace Arch at the United States and Canadian border, there's a monument at, called the Peace Arch, and it says uh, children of a common mother. So it's not like it's hidden from Canadians and Americans. It's right there on their monuments. And uh, with two brothers together in two nations, uh, there's a tendency, I believe, that um, um, when the extreme forces, when your enemies start to rise against you, you have a tendency to consolidate your assets for protection, rearrange the, the, the fences, the security fences, uh, which is what the wall is. They, uh, we, you know, vote Bush off the island. It became part of our, our lingo. Vote so and so, whoever you didn't like, you voted them off the island. Uh, that that island mentality also came into the Survivor series on TV. So you could see this rising after 2000 in the language and in the culture that there is an island mentality. And so you could see these tribal forces are starting to make things happen. And of course, today, Canada and the United States are basically going through a complete metamorphosis and are, are going to come out the other side with either a continental government like Europe or different states at 52nd, 53rd, 54th states. And I think this uh, pandemic is going to hasten that process that was already in place, but now it's going to hasten that. Uh, you, you mentioned about, you gave kind of a Mad Max scenario that kind of stands in contrast to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, how America will, will recover. Um, but then you say that, you know, there'll be this disappearance of the, of the middle class. So I'm just trying to reconcile those two. So, uh, well, there's not a trickle down to all the eco economics as we know, sometimes, uh, uh, things economically go well, but it doesn't trickle down to the, to the masses as well, but the corporations and the government can benefit and become, uh, and uh, I mean, obviously, uh, um, big Canadian corporations and their Canadian shareholders can benefit in a great way. And uh, that doesn't mean that it filters all the way down. And Christ said, where the poor will always be among us. You're always going to have the poor. But on that level aside, you can have a great deal of, you know, oil can start going up in value and we could start getting more money paid by the oil companies to the government. But that doesn't mean the government passes it on to us, does it? Right, right. So there's various levels of who could benefit economically. I mean, the workforce is strong, as we said, so Canada as a whole will go. But 
maybe some maybe uh, some will be taken advantage of and that the money will go more to the corporation than to the people who knows the strength of unions is another thing if the unions are stronger than that wealth will track trickle down but when we were talking about the big picture we're talking about the wealth of a nation and that's different from the wealth of its people or what happens with the middle class so you mentioned canada either being assimilated or uh, subsumed by America or a continental government. Yet, at the moment, Canada seems to be saddling up with China. What's at work there? What's at play there? Trudeau seems to be acquiescing to the Chinese uh, at every turn. I know part of that is perhaps his desire to get a, a seat on the UN Security Council, but I'm finding his fealty to China above Canadians very disturbing. Well, that is in keeping and no surprise given he comes out of loyalties to are to their secret societies before their loyalties are to their nation. That's why McLuhan warned about nation uh, secret societies and how the arts and sciences are in their pockets. So, you know, uh, these people are have allegiances and loyalties to beyond the nation state apparatus. And, of course, some of it is to the NWO operation or some part of the NWO. So Trudeau's loyalties are not first to Canada, and nor were his father's. So when he was brought in, sunny ways. It's interesting to study. Uh, I did a study on sunny ways, his comment, because they like to throw out – they like to be able to come back and tell you, well, we told you that if they get caught. So they drop these little bombs, but it, when you go back to it, you don't realize they've dropped a bomb, but it's like sunny ways. What are they telling us? Um, what is sunny ways? And when you go into it, you'll see sunny ways was that the way in which you would get an animal to drop its guard is to increase the heat, make it hot, make him drop his shields. So sunny ways is a military term a fable but not a fable and he threw that out and so he could always go back and say well i always told you i said it was sunny ways sunny ways we're going to force you into it is what he's saying i told you we're going to force you into it that's what sunny ways mean so these guys are pretty slick so trudeau though i think has got two masters now and i think that now that um, a lafayette agreement has been done between the patriots and the british crown explain that briefly we're almost out of time the lafayette agreement when um, the british general cornwallis surrendered to lafayette they were fighting in the 13 colonies their troops british troops are fighting against the french troops in the 13 colonies when the war ended the Cornwallis, the British, surrendered to the French. Uh, Lafayette, to General Lafayette, he surrendered, and that's the Lafayette Agreement. But Cornwallis, the British, never surrendered to Washington. And so the war continued. So what Trump has done is brought the Lafayette Agreement to the British crown and got them to surrender. In return, he would guarantee a strong trade pact with Britain to make up for what they're going to lose by losing by withdrawing from the EU and gaining their freedom back. So there's a big thing going on here, multi-hundreds of years operation re being represented in battles going on between the patriots with Trump, the New World Order, and the Waffen-SS and the British Crown. And you can see this is causing the British Crown to break up. 
and uh, you can see that Harry is breaking up, and it's very interesting whether or not he's a double agent or a triple agent. I think that's something we'll see in the future. It'll start to emerge. But he's certainly a major agent and operative, probably, of uh, British SOS. All uh, all interesting points to pick up on on a subsequent show. Nelson, thank you for hanging out for these two hours. It's been a real pleasure, real pleasure. And make sure everybody changes their name before they listen to this show and has an alibi where they were. Because Big Brother will want to know. <laughs> yes, in the meantime, you and I will have to to hire someone to start our cars in the morning. Well, you know what? Let me just leave you with this quote, a terrific quote by James Joyce. Welcome, O life. I go to encounter for the millionth time the reality of experience and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. Look forward to seeing you. Good night. Thanks, Richard. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, that's it for me. My thanks to Carlos Cagina and Ryan White back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Or at least up the stairs. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.